With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I'm Tiff. And we're back again. Happy holidays, everybody. Jingle bells, jingle bells. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the holidays officially, as much as I don't want to admit it. I'm very much like a um, no Christmas decorations until at least after Thanksgiving. I try to make it to December 1st, but it kind of depends on the time that I have. Yeah. But, like, the fact that it was, like, the day after Halloween and people had their Christmas lights up, I'm, like, we have a whole We have a whole other holiday before Christmas. Right. Right. Where's your Thanksgiving lights? Have you seen the thing that people were doing where they put up their Christmas tree and then put a white sheet over it and dressed it as a ghost? I did. I did. <laughs> I know. I thought about doing that. But the issue is, is like, where my tree is at, there's uh, an end table on the end of the couch that I move for Christmas season and put it next to my chair on the other side. So, like, the table would have had to been there longer, mm-hmm. which is, like, good for me because I don't have any table next to the chair I normally sit in. So it's kind of nice because I'm able to put, like, you know, my drinks and stuff on the table. But um, it's also just kind of in an awkward position for the living room mm-hmm. for a little while. So <laughs> that would have kind of sucked. But I did see that. It was very cute. Um we're back again with a great, great show for you on this likely cold and wintry. God, this when people are listening to this, there's probably going to be snow on the ground. Shut oh, up. I know. It makes me sick. <laughs> Fuck that. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. The fact that it's already snowed once is bullshit. <laughs> I know. It was like like two or three days before I was going to get my new tires. Like I was going that day, the day that it snowed, to make the appointment oh, to get Jesus. my tires like three days later. So when I woke up and saw it was snowing outside, I was like, no, please. Like, I'm just about to get my tires. I'm not trying. Because I needed tires, like, before last winter. Mm-hmm. And I put them off for a very long time. So. Well, they're not cheap. They are not cheap. It was, like, 
because I ended up getting an alignment. It was like seven something, seven hundred dollars mm-hmm. and something. <sighs> yeah. Adult problems. I know. Big time adult problems. So our news this week comes to us from uh, Sydney, New South Wales. Oh, okay. Australia. Uh-huh. That area. Tell me, have you seen Top Gun Maverick? Nope. Okay. So you would not have any strong feelings one way or the other on the Top Gun movie. I have strong feelings about Tom Cruise, but not oh, yeah. a Scientologist. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. So Constable Dominic Francis Gaynor was sitting at the counter at the police station when one of his colleagues, 26-year-old probationary constable Morgan Royston, he had gone, he comes up to the counter, he's like, so I just saw uh, Top Gun Maverick last night. I'll spoil it for you. (laughs) Um, Gaynor laughed as another colleague left the room and said, don't spoil the movie, cunt. (laughs) Very Australian. It's better if you say it with an Australian accent, but I can't do that. Um, And then Gaynor was like, I'll shoot you. And then he took the Glock out of its holster and pointed it at the vicinity of the complainant and held it stationary for five seconds. So he like took out his gun. (laughs) It's like, fucking shoot you if you spoil this movie for me. And pointed it at one of his colleagues. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so he was charged for this action. Uh-huh. And uh, was sentenced. He got a two-year good bond behavior and a conviction. The conviction is towards the end of the article, apparently. Hold on. The conviction was that his colleagues... Had to spoil the movie for him. Yeah, right. He was placed on a community corrections order for two years, handed him 100 hours of community service, and recorded a conviction. And didn't get to see the movie. That that would be the worst. <laughs> on top of this, you're never allowed to watch the movie ever. Not in you theaters can only, anyway. You only hear spoilers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Moving right along to Netflix and Kill. This week is a... Peacock and Glock? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's ne- it's Netflix and Kill. Peacock and Shock? Well. I don't know. Anyway, it's from Peacock. Uh, it is the documentary Krishna's Guru's Karma Murder. <laughs> Are you familiar with the Krishna's at all? Very little. I see. So it's, first of all, wild story. Um, this covers the sort of Hare Krishna movement that was happening in the 60s and the 70s. Um, it is, you know, obviously a very like spiritual, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, reincarnation dealy. Yep. Um, and frankly, like, it, I think in the beginning it was this very wholesome thing where people were trying to reach enlightenment. Um, however, when the main guy, Swami Prabhu, Prabhupada, um, died, he basically elected these people gurus in the U.S. 
And one of them was this guy named Keith Ham. Now, Keith Ham, who was also known as Kirtananda Swami, uh, founds this religious community called New Vrindavan in North Carolina and sets up shop there. And basically, anybody who wanted to be part of the Krishna movement moved there, lived on the property. He like sort of sold it as this like come here for your spiritual enlightenment. We just like farm out the land and like live very modestly and like all this other shit, right? When people showed up, it was like living in hovels. Like sometimes it wasn't even, it was like little shacks. And yeah, the food that they were eating was not, it was like a brown sludge of stuff that they just like mixed together. Of course, this is all free labor. He had gotten the property for a dollar from a farmer who wanted to – he basically advertised like he he wanted to sell the land to somebody who wanted to create a spiritual community um, for people who were going to live there. Like that's specifically what he wanted for a center that's open like 24 hours a day um, for this land. So he sold it to these people for a dollar because that's what uh, Keith Ham said he was going to do and then it turned into this whole thing. Anyway, Keith Ham has – this like huge power grab starts uh, sending people out to make money for the organization in ways that are super duper fraudulent. Um, some of the things where they were like selling counterfeit uh, sports memorabilia. So they would go to like college and professional sports and like sell stickers and hats and whatever else, mm-hmm. all counterfeit. Um, and they would say that they were collecting money for various charities, children's charities, veterans charities, all sorts of stuff. But they had to do this to get money for the temple. Uh, There was also this, like, big power struggle between Keith Hamm and the other gurus. Um, A ton of stuff happened, including, like, physical abuse to children. And, you know, there's also this idea of, like, sexual partners and sexual freedom. But a lot of times that meant, like, men having sex with whoever they wanted all the time. Uh, Of course. And women not having a say in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so there's a lot of shit going on with the Krishnas. This all culminates in murder, as you might have guessed. Um, and Keith Ham is eventually arrested along with this guy that he, whose name I forget, that he it was like his um, enforcer, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's a really, really interesting documentary. I love this one because it has a lot of um, original footage from like the time when the Christians were setting up New Vrindavan and like what was going on there, mm-hmm. um, which I dig like old footage of shit. Yeah. So that was really nice. Um, and I think it's only three parts, so pretty short. Uh, but it was really, really interesting. So after the first main guy died, he elected, I don't remember what you called them. Gurus. Gurus. Yeah. Are there other ones in other places that are? Yeah. So there is like. Okay, so there's like the way the way that I understand it is there's like a parent Krishna organization um, that runs out of India. Okay, um, and because these are all this is very uh, like Indian religion mm-hmm. brought to the U.S. and so there was even like. Um, like for the U S organizations, they would have meetings of like all of the leaders of all of the various like Krishna temples across the U S. So there's sort of, there is sort of like a governing body and there was a point in time, I think before the main guy 
died. I'm pretty sure it was before the main guy died that Keith Ham was actually expelled from the Krishnas for a little bit because he was not like living to the standards that they mm-hmm. required and then was like brought into the fold after he was able to appease um, the main dude. So like there is some sort of governing body, but by this point, like he had all of these people under him mm-hmm. who like were his followers and even though there was some shit going on at New Vrindavan, like, I don't think that people were really saying anything about it until – because the people who were saying stuff about it were the people who were getting killed or, like, expelled. hmm So. Okay. I was just wondering if it was, yeah. like, he took over more than what I thought he did, but it was, like, him just going rogue, essentially. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very much akin to, like – um uh, like Jeff Warren's did with the FLDS. Oh, yeah. Where he was just like, no, it's me now. And like, <laughs> you know, like, this is my thing now. Yeah. Very similar to that, where he did go rogue <laughs> fully. <laughs> um, but it is a really interesting documentary. Uh, like I said, if you just search Krishna's on Peacock, it'll come up. But it's called Krishna's Guru's Karma Murder. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. This week we're talking about Christmas murder. We're talking about Christmas murder. <laughs> Which sounds very jolly, but actually is not. No. Is not at all. Um, so we are definitely going to be talking about some very uh, not great things. Obviously, murder is the big one. Yep. So be warned. Yep, if you don't murder. want a bummer on your Christmas. Mine has, well, it has murder. It has mm, corpse jokes. Cool. Great. (laughs) Awesome. That's totally what I came here for today. (laughs) So I would like to start my story off with just um, a little clip from a song to set the tone. Future me is cursing right now. I'm sorry, girl. (laughs) We'll get it together. It seems I hear Henry Moore from the earth's voice to cries. No bomb can kill her dreams, I hope, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill her dreams, I hope, for freedom never dies. It happened in Florida, the land of flowers. It was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange grove. Men of hate carried dynamite. It was to a little cottage, the family the name of more. At the window hung sprigs of holly, a fine wreath at the door. It was on a Christmas evening and the family prayers were said. Mother, father, daughter, and grandmother went to bed. The father's name was Harry Moore of the NAACP. He fought for the life for us to live. Black folk must be free. I'm just thinking, of course, it happened in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty bad. So that was the Ballad of Harry T. Moore, written by Langston Hughes and adapted into a song by Sweet Honey in the Rock, which is what we just heard. 
Um, and it was written to remember Harry Moore and the Christmas bombing of 1951. But first, a little background. <laughs> Let's get some context in this bitch. Yeah. Okay. So Harry Moore was born in 1905 in Houston, Florida. At just nine years old, Harry's father died, and shortly after, he was sent to live with his sister in Daytona Beach. Just a few years later, Harry would move to Jacksonville, where he lived with three of his aunts. Now, this is an incredibly important move for the trajectory of his life, because Jacksonville had, at the time, this really thriving uh, African-American community, and his aunts were all, like, super well-educated black women. Um, Two of them were educators, and one of them was a nurse. Okay. So, and they treated Harry like he was their own son. So it was this very, like, positive black environment that Mm -hmm. really, like, set him on the path to what he would eventually do. So... Uh, Living here also nurtured Harry's love of learning and pushed him towards getting an education himself. So after three years in Jacksonville, Harry returned home where he attended a high school program, graduating in 1925 with a degree that allowed him to teach in elementary schools. Okay. Shortly after, Harry took a job teaching in Cocoa, Florida, in Brevard County, teaching fourth grade students at the town's only black elementary school. It was here where Harry met Harriet Vita Sims. Now, Harriet Sims was born in West Palm Beach, Florida in 1902 to a pretty big family. She had two sisters and three brothers. Probably not big for the time, but I feel like that's big. (laughs) That's a lot of brothers and sisters. Like, you and I both have one sibling. So, like, can you imagine? I, I always think, like, can you imagine coming from... No. Plus three more. No, thank you. I don't want it. Uh, When she was young, the family moved to Mims, Florida, where they seemed to have pretty much settled and stayed. When she was young, she would go to work with her father in Massillon, Ohio. But when she was able, she was off to school. And Harriet went to the segregated Daytona Normal Industrial Institute, but later graduated from the historically black college Bethune-Cookman College with degrees in both 1941 and 1950. Hmm. She, Harriet was teaching elementary school, and frankly, she kind of spent most of her time um, teaching around Florida. She kind of was teaching for a while. There was a point when her and Harry later get married that she is an insurance agent for a little while and then goes back to teaching. It kind of sounds like she goes back and forth. So I wanted to share this story from one of Harriet's former students about how she ran her classroom, which I thought was really interesting. This is from the Zinn Education Project, and the student uh, Paj Wadley-Bailey says, quote, Mrs. Moore did not complain or express outrage at having to teach us from old tattered textbooks passed down to us from the white school. What she did do was teach us primarily from the few boxes of her own private books, which she kept hidden under her desk. Her books were about African-American people who had made important contributions to the world, people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Mary McLeod Bethune and Sojourner Truth. She read stories to us by Zora Neale Hurston and poems by Langston Hughes, and she shared her Ebony magazine articles about Black history. This learning was deep and personal. It was important because it was 
about people like us, and it was secret. She didn't have to tell us not to tell anyone about these books. We knew they were dangerous when she appointed one of us to be a lookout person at the window. So if the superintendent of schools came on one of his unannounced inspections, he wouldn't catch us using them. These books, their physical existence and stories they told taught me about unspoken truths, secrets, and lies. End quote. Wow. Yeah. So, like, it's very clear that, like, both of these people are very active in, like, the black community mm-hmm. and educating, which I kind of – I just love this idea of her, like, keeping a box of books at her desk <laughs> also. <laughs> yeah. She's a very teacher of her. So it was while she was teaching in Brevard County that she met Harry – And Harry and Harriet fell madly in love, and the two were married in just a year of being together on Christmas Day in 1926. Very cute. Although, I always think about it, I'm like, I don't know that Christmas would be the holiday I would choose to get married on. Halloween, right? I don't honestly even know that I would get married on Halloween. Maybe around Halloween, but also, like, then you're spoiling Halloween with also your anniversary. So you're always going to have to do something for your anniversary on Halloween. But if you just did it, like, beginning of October, you could still make it Halloween themed. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, maybe, like, another October weekend, but maybe not on Halloween. Yeah. I know. These are things that me, as a single person with no prospects, (laughs) thinks about all the time. (laughs) So they got married, and then they had two children, Annie Rosalia, who was also called Peaches, and Juanita Evangeline. It wasn't long after the birth of their daughters that the Moors founded and began Brevard County's chapter of the NAACP, along with aiding in the NAACP's statewide program in Florida. Now, again, this is in the 30s. We're in the South. This is pre-national like national civil rights movement. It mm-hmm. was there. That was just starting to bubble up. Like This is before, really, though, like the big national civil rights movement. Um, and almost everywhere in the South was still segregated. Like segregation was in full effect Mm -hmm. at this point. So the Moors were not necessarily viewed favorably by their white counterparts for like their, and they were very open about their activism. It wasn't like a secret, Mm -hmm. but that also drew some unwanted attention. We'll say in the early years, this included, investigating lynchings, advocating for voting rights for African-Americans. And Harry specifically, like, did a lot in the fight for equal pay for black teachers in public schools, which, again, were still still segregated. Mm -hmm. Their activism did not go unnoticed. And in 1946, both of the Moors were fired from their teaching jobs because of it. Yeah, I know. Bullshit. Instead, Harry Moore decided to take a paid position with the NAACP to provide for his family. According to PBS, quote, during his first two years, he built the Florida NAACP to a peak of over 10,000 members in 63 branches. Jesus. I know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Yeah. Moore also had a huge involvement in the Groveland case. Are you familiar with no. that at all? Um, so the Groveland case is when four black men, Ernest Thomas, Charles Greenlee, Sam Shepard, and Walter Irvin were accused of raping a white woman, 17-year-old Norma Paget, and assaulting her husband in July of 1949. Thomas allegedly fled and was killed on site by a posse of more than 400 sheriffs. Yeah. 
Greenlee, Shepard, and Irvin were arrested and beaten to retrieve confessions to the crime, and only Irvin still refused to confess fully. Uh, all three were convicted by an all-white jury. Shepard and Irvin received death sentences, while Greenlee received life in prison because he was 16 at the time, which is insane and excessive. Yep. Uh, I will also say, like, now it's believed, obviously, that these men were all innocent, mm-hmm. um, but also that, like, they were accused because the woman, Norma Paget, her husband, was beating her oh. and didn't want her parents to find out. And so instead accused these four black men. Jesus. I know. I know. I told you this one was going to be kind of a downer. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yep. Uh, Harry Moore managed to organize a campaign to act on behalf of what he and NAACP felt were wrongly convicted men. They were able to file appeals on their behalf with the extra help of one Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did manage to win an appeal for Shepard and Irvin before the United States Supreme Court and got a new trial. However, when Shepard and Irvin were being transported to the courthouse for the new trial in November 1951, County Sheriff McCall shot and killed both men. McCall claimed that he was attacked uh, while both men were in the back wearing handcuffs and killed them in self-defense. In a bit of what might be the only positive turn in this whole thing, uh, Irvin actually managed to survive his wounds. And after he had recovered in the hospital, he told the FBI and the NAACP that the sheriff had not, in fact, been attacked, but shot the man out of nowhere. Moore was incredibly vocal in calling for an investigation into Sheriff McCall and an indictment for murder and attempted murder and for the Florida governor to immediately suspend McCall from office. But McCall was never charged. Of course. Of fucking course not. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Just six weeks later, in the late hours of not only Christmas Day, but also the Moore's 25th wedding anniversary, because they got married on Christmas, in 1951, a bomb that had been planted under the Moore's home went off. Sadly, Harry died on the way to the hospital um, because it was 30 miles away for the closest hospital that would take African-American patients. <sighs> And Harriet would die from her injuries nine days later. Yeah. The FBI arrived at the Moore's home in Florida within hours of the blast and determined that the bomb had been made of dynamite and placed near the bedroom under the home. There obviously was national outcry in the wake of the Moore's murder. It was one of a series of bombings that had begun in the fall of 1951 that largely targeted black communities, almost all of which were assumed or attributed to the work of the Ku Klux Klan. Because we're in the south of yep. the U.S. In, mm-hmm. the thir- in the 50s. The same was assumed in Moore's case as well, although it was going to be just as hard to... Um, just as hard and just as unlikely to be solved as almost all of the bombings before it. So in total, five separate investigations were conducted by various government agencies, all of which point to Harry and Harriet's involvement in the early civil rights movement as a motivation for the attack. 
The first uh, investigation was started immediately by the FBI following the bombings in 1951 through 1955. Now, according to the Justice Department, it included over a thousand interviews in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and California. It almost immediately immediately focused on the KKK. Like there was mm-hmm. not a question for people that this was like, yeah, this was really fucking racist. It's probably the KKK. <laughs> Are we ever shocked when they're fucking involved, truthfully? Anyway, so it immediately focused on the KKK and confirmed that the hate group was well aware of Harry Moore's work with the NAACP and his advocacy within the civil rights movement. This investigation produced two primary suspects, Earl J. Brooklyn and Tillman H. Belvin both members of the KKK, and both, quote, having been expelled from Klan Claverns in Georgia for being too violent. Oh, my God. Wait. That, what? Yeah. (laughs) They were too violent for the fucking KKK. I didn't realize the KKK had any standards. Had standards at all? (laughs) They don't. I mean, they don't. I mean, they have the one. (laughs) God, (laughs) you're not wrong. But yeah, I never knew that somebody could be too violent for the KKK. Witnesses told the FBI that the men had been seen discussing the layout of the Moore home and that they had been in town asking for directions to the home in the months before the bombing. When asked about his whereabouts on the evening of Christmas Day, 1951, Brooklyn could not give authorities an answer to where he was. He pretty much was just, like, giving inconsistent answers and was just like, yeah, I don't know. Okay. They also found evidence that in the month after the bombing, Belvin was contacted by another Klan member who asked if he had any dynamite, to which he had said, quote, no, I used it all on the last job. Both Belvin and Brooklyn died in 1952 before the FBI inc- concluded its investigation. How did they die? <laughs> Um, one of them, mm, I don't really remember. One of them, I think, was like I health things. I think they were both health things, oh, to be okay. honest. So karma? Yeah, right. <laughs> the investigation into the bombing of the Moore's home was reopened in 1978 in a joint effort by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office and the Brevard County State's Attorney. They went back over through the original investigation, like with a fine tooth comb. They were just like following the original investigation to see if anything new cropped up. However, not everyone was happy about them, like going back over all of this stuff. And a detective from the Brevard County Sheriff's Office named Edward L. Spivy reached out to complain, saying it's like a waste of taxpayer money. Like, why are you guys going back over this stuff? As it turns out, Spivy is a high-ranking member of the Florida KKK who knew a bit more than he initially let on. During multiple interviews with the police, Spivy revealed that actually a close friend of his, Joseph Cox, was responsible for detonating the bomb under the Moore's home. Calls coming from inside the house again. Fucking cops. Anyway, Cox had been questioned by the FBI in the original investigation and gave some information about Brooklyn and Belvin, but denied any uh, knowledge of the bombing. 
He was interviewed for a second time in March 1952, but still denied any knowledge of the bombing. This is again from the Justice Department, quote, Cox did, however, inquire several times during the interview whether the FBI's evidence would hold up in court. The next day, Cox killed himself with a shotgun he borrowed from Spivy. End quote. Okay. The plot thickens. Spivy told the FBI that Cox had come to him the day after that second interview and essentially confessed that he had been paid $5,000 by the Klan to kill Harry Moore and that he had used this money to pay off his mortgage. He was concerned that the FBI would find out about that mortgage payment and then come after him for the murders. Mm -hmm. After revealing this information to the FBI, Spivy then told him that he was dying of cancer. And so the uh, FBI then took all of this information as a deathbed confession, which, as you know, deathbed or maybe not. I don't know. Do you know about deathbed confessions? Yeah. They hold up in court. That is like if if they get a deathbed confession, that's like held to be the truest thing that somebody could say. Right. So um, they also thought that due to the amount of information that Spivy was able to provide about the bombings, that it was possible that he was actually in attendance when the bomb went off. So the state's attorney was prepared to present the case against Spivy to a grand jury, but unfortunately lost his reelection bid. The case was then closed and Spivy was never charged and died from cancer in 1980. Yeah, that's investigation number two. <laughs> okay, good. There's more. There is more. Um, but I would not get your hopes up. Oh, fuck. Yes. The third investigation was opened in 1991 by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Investigation. They had received some new information regarding, like, other current or former Klan members, but none of it really panned out. They had sort of discounted a confession from earlier, but it wasn't anything that was, like, super new. And also, this part was heavily redacted because I think it has to do with, like, members of the police. So they didn't really get anything from that part. The fourth investigation was opened in 2004 (laughs) by the Florida Attorney General's Office of Civil Rights Investigation. They wanted to see if they could get any new information and actually, so they conducted a bunch of new interviews. They also did a complete excavation of the site of the Moore's home to see if they could produce any new evidence. Okay. Um, because since then, that has been, like, dubbed – I think I talk about it later, but it's been dubbed, like, historical site. So they, like, oh. completely excavated it. They had access to it, yeah. It wasn't just, like, somebody else's house was there. <laughs> Is that what you were thinking? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, no. It wasn't – it's, like, a historical site. They confirmed in this investigation that Brooklyn, Belvin, Cox, and Spivy were likely responsible for the murders. Likely. Yes. Okay. The fifth and final investigation was opened in 2008 by the FBI as a part of the Department of Justice's Cold Case Initiative and the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act of 2007. At that time, the FBI basically went through all four prior investigations and essentially concluded that, yes, Brooklyn, Belvin, Cox, and Spivy were the most probable, uh, although... All four by that point were dead. 
The case was officially closed by the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division in 2011, and technically the Moore's murder remains unsolved because they were not able to bring any convictions because everyone's dead. Yep. Which is shitty. It's shitty. But, I mean, um, those four guys are pretty much, like, assumed to be... Comfortably assumed. Comfortably assumed, yes. Now, as I mentioned before... Um, In the wake of Harry and Harriet's murder, there was a huge national outcry. The NAACP put on a memorial service in 1952, attended by 15,000 people, where Langston Hughes first read the ballad of Harry Moore that we heard at the top of the show. President Harry Truman and Florida Governor Fuller Warren both received a huge amount of telegrams protesting the continued murder of civil rights activists in Florida. Jackie Robinson... Are you familiar? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. (laughs) Girl, I don't know. You said you're not into true crime. I feel like I don't know you anymore. (laughs) Um, Jackie Robinson also held a memorial service in New York City that saw 3,000 people in attendance. Harry Moore was posthumously awarded the NAACP's Springer Medal, which recognizes outstanding achievement by an African-American. Moore was recognized for being an NAACP leader in the state of Florida and a martyr in the crusade for freedom. Uh, The Moore's home where the bombing happened was dubbed a historical heritage landmark in the state of Florida in 1999. Harry and Harriet were some of the early martyrs of the civil rights movement and still the only married couple to be killed for their work in civil rights. Hmm. And although the Moore's names have seemingly been lost to history, like when you're looking at civil rights things, like the Moore's are not somebody that comes up super frequently, which is really unfortunate because Harry Moore is pretty much considered one of the fathers of civil rights, laying the groundwork for like the modern civil rights movement. So I couldn't believe that this was the first time that I had heard about the Moors um, because they played like this huge role in getting the NAACP off the ground in Florida, let alone like national work in voter rights and fair pay and like that's wild to me. He's pretty major. Like, yeah. they're pretty fucking major. So, anyway, that is the sad story of the Christmas Day bombings of the Moore family. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Picture it. You're a kid on Christmas morning. Okay. I'm picturing. <laughs> You're opening presents while your parents watch. Okay. We did. So let me tell you. Oh, boy. We did presents from my parents on Christmas Eve night. Okay. And then Christmas morning, we did presents from Santa because we would be driving down to Peoria to like do the rest of the Christmas. So like first thing Christmas morning, we did Santa presents and then left for Peoria. Okay. So thinking this- Santa presents. Okay. Think Santa presents. Yes. Magical time. Yes. But what if mom wasn't actually watching? Oh. What if she was super dead instead? Oh, no. 
Okay. This is not where I thought it was going. Let's talk about Zazel Preston and piece of shit William Wallace. Okay. Zazel Preston was born in California in 1985. Uh, She lived with various family members as she grew up. She had her first child while in high school, working various retail and fast food jobs to, okay. to uh, while raising her. Sure. In her early 20s, she met another man, had her second child, and then broke it off with that child's father. Okay. From there, she started a relationship with William Wallace. Okay. Wallace was a doc. This is the piece of shit? Yes. Piece, okay. <laughs> I, I want to say piece of shit William Wallace because it's not that William Wallace and it's not that other that William Wallace either. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we've talked about various William Wallaces on this show. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize until you asked me, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah. Strange, anyway. Common name, I guess. I don't know. I didn't know it was until now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny, because I was doing research for this and finding the other one. The other ones. Damn. <laughs> sure, that made your research so easy. Well... It was easy to distinguish between. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, Wallace was a dock worker at the time and had worked various blue collar jobs after high school. Um, it wasn't long into their relationship where he became violent. Oh, no. In 2008, Wallace was found guilty of battery against a cohabitant. He received 45 days in jail, probation, and was required to attend a batterer's treatment program. Jesus, okay. Preston got a restraining order against him, but he was able to weasel his way back into her life. I feel like restraining orders are one of those things that's, like, not... I mean, they're helpful, but, like, there's so many things that can go wrong with a restraining order, too. Yeah. Yeah, Dumb. we've done. I think Janelle and I have talked about this before, the the inefficiency of restraining orders and how weirdly it can go both ways. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, from the Orange County Register, quote: On at least two occasions, he was arrested for violating the protective order, and he went back to jail. Oh. But by this time, Zizel was pregnant again with Wallace's child. Oh, no. Um, And also, uh, while he was there, she visited him, and he'd said he'd found Jesus. Okay, right. Sure. (laughs) Um, She shared with family that she had planned to marry Wallace, and when Wallace got out of jail, he moved in with Preston and her two children. Oh, honey, no. Several months before her death, spoiler alert, Preston enrolled in college classes where she had hoped to learn to become a domestic violence counselor. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I applaud her for that, but, like, geez. Yeah. Geez. A friend of the family and Anaheim Councilwoman Lori Galloway, who also runs the Eli Home for Abused Women and Children in Anaheim, shared with the Orange County Register that Preston had confided in her and others about, quote, the beatings Wallace regularly administered during their three-year relationship. Oh, my goodness. No, just get out. I know it's not that easy, but it's like... But that's, uh, I mean, that's essentially what everyone else was saying, too. Get the fuck out. And they were hoping between, like, you know, friend support who are in the network and the fact that she was taking the classes that... She yeah, would. maybe it might like connect to something in her own life. Yeah, I mean, clearly, I feel like if she was going for that, clearly she knew mm-hmm. it wasn't right. But like, I know 
the the state of victims of domestic abuse is like the mental state is like not as straightforward. No. As everyone thinks, I think, you know. Yeah. So now let's get into it. Okay. Christmas Eve 2011, Preston and Wallace go to a neighbor's house for a Christmas Eve party. Okay. Um, this was about seven weeks after the birth of their shared child. Okay. A neighbor claims that they heard the couple arguing later that night after they returned home. Okay. The next morning, about 9.30 a.m., Wallace called 911 to report that Preston was in need of medical attention. Okay. Paramedics arrived to find Preston slumped over on the couch. Oh, no. Police found blood throughout the apartment, holes punched into walls, and a door pulled from its hinges. Holy shit. That is, like, some extreme violence. Mm Mm-hmm. Wallace was arrested and charged with one felony count of murder and was held with bail set at $1 million. Jesus. Fast forward almost 10 fucking years. Okay. March 2021. Wallace's trial begins. Oh, my God. Uh, That's so long. And I know some of that is COVID related, I'm sure. But... Like, maybe the tail end of it. Right, right. Why did it take so long? I don't know. I'm really surprised, because, like, that's not what you think of when you think of speedy trial. And I realize, obviously, there's, like, motions and things that happen in the... But 10 years worth? Mm-hmm. That's wild. Oh, and he stayed in jail the entire time. Yo. That's uh, insane. Yeah. That's insane. Here is a happy, fun quote from the Orange County Register. Quote, Preston relatives told investigators that Wallace was controlling and violent and alleged that he threatened to kill his wife on several occasions. One relative described finding a pregnant Preston laying in the fetal position in the street after one alleged beating. Oh, my gosh. On Christmas Eve, when one neighbor had heard an argument, another told investigators, quote, Wallace could be seen picking up what appeared to be a body by an apartment gate. According to one of Preston's family members, Wallace told them, quote, we were drinking and during the argument, I tossed her around a bit. Uh, hold on a second. So somebody said they saw him picking up a body, but they didn't call police? Are we really surprised by that? I don't... I mean, kind of. Like, I just... I don't know. If you're like, yeah, it's probably a body, then I would fucking call police. We say that about trash bags on the side of the road. It's probably a fucking body. It's true. And I do not call police for every single trash bag I see. (laughs) Have you called police for any of the trash bags? No. But I do make note of where they are so that if they're still there for too long, like... (laughs) Then we might need to check something out. <laughs> See them like four days later and they've inflated a little bit. Yeah, right? Like that would be kind of sketch. Yep. What a weird fucking tangent that was. <laughs> <laughs> the prosecutor told the jury that the next morning, Christmas Day, Wallace moved his wife's body from the bedroom to a living room couch, put sunglasses on her, and told the children, quote, Mommy ruined Christmas. She got drunk and ruined Christmas. He then had them open their presents. What? So he literally put her, like, in, in, on the couch, dead. Mm-hmm. Yo. 
That's messed up. Wallace had claimed his wife had suffered a concussion after falling and hitting her head. Wallace's attorney, Heather Moorhead, told jurors that he was not responsible for his wife's death and that a drunk Preston fell into a glass table. She also says that Preston's older daughter, who was eight at the time, saw her mother trip and fall into a table. There is so much wrong with that defense. Because, like, if that was the case, then, like, why didn't he call 911? Like, right away. Like, right away. Mm -hmm. And also, why did she have sunglasses on? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. If he didn't put them on her, you know what I mean? Like, if that were the case, then he would definitely have some, you know, liability for negligence in the very least. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he didn't call 911. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Okay. Except that he, well, he did, he did the, next morning, the next morning. But like after they had opened presents, mm-hmm. dude. Um, dude, that's yeah. wild. The daughter helped pull glass out of her mother's body and clean her wounds. Then Wallace moved her into a bathtub, but Preston's head struck something else on the way. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Okay. Preston's oldest daughter, who was seventeen at the trial said that Wallace and Preston were arguing when they returned from the Christmas party and that it slowly turned physical. She described Wallace pushing Preston into a glass table. She then testified that Wallace then asked her to help him pull pieces of glass from Preston's body before he carried her into a bathroom to clean her up. In the bathroom, Wallace dropped Preston and her head hit the side of the (gasps) toilet seat. Oh, my God. Quote, after she hit the toilet, and I think she passed away... He just took her to the bedroom and put her down to sleep while she was deceased. That is what I remember because she was cold. Oh, my God. Yo. She said that she and her sister woke up the next morning and went to open presents. Wallace dragged Preston's body into the living room and put her on the living room couch. Quote, I remember trying to touch my mom and she was just rock hard, cold, and I said, Mommy, and she didn't respond. Oh, my God. How traumatizing. I'd be traumatized forever. Mm-hmm. Dude. The defense attorney noted that ju- to jurors that the older daughter's statements appeared to conflict with comments she made to investigators shortly after Preston's death that her mother had tripped and fallen into the table. Yeah. I mean, fair, because she was seven mm-hmm. when that happened. Eight. You said it was ten years later? Yeah, it was eight and almost ten years okay. later. So. Like... I feel like they were probably coerced a bit that by... Is, that's actually one of the theories, is that he coached them yeah. on what to say. Yeah. Yeah. Because huh. he would... That is not her dad. Like, that's not... Correct. Yeah. So, like, I don't see why she would have any, like, loyalty to him, especially being an adult and, like, knowing what happened mm-hmm. to, like, cover for him. You know what I mean? Um, Which, obviously, she's not covering for him now. But. No. Yeah. Um, Also, the relative who had earlier stated Wallace told her he tossed her around a bit no longer recalled saying, recalled Wallace saying that, the word tossing. Yeah. um, Instead, recalling that he had said they were, quote, drinking and horsing around. Okay. Uh, From the Orange County Register, quote, jurors were given a variety of charges to deliberate from involuntary manslaughter to first degree murder. Jurors were also tasked with sifting through recollections of the night Preston died and the following Christmas morning. Okay. Because there's initial reports and then almost 10 years later, 
trial. Yeah. Yeah. I can I the fact that it took 10 years to get to trial is like blowing my mind. Mm-hmm. Because and this is a big reason, right? Like especially when you're de- dealing with child memory. Yeah. Um like there has been a lot of studies of memory that frankly we can never remember anything the same way twice, right? Like mm-hmm. it's constantly changing and especially when you're young, like I think it's easier to sort of I think it's easier to repress that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it is also easier to be manipulated by mm-hmm. adults, as I think was the case here. The jury ultimately found William Wallace guilty of second-degree murder on Good. April 7th. Good. On June 4th, he was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison with credit given for the nine years he had already spent behind bars. Thank God. I am glad that he's going to jail, but yeah, he should get credit for that sentence because... That's fucking wild. That is, this whole thing is wild, but like, I don't know why that is the piece that is like blowing my mind the most. 10 years to trial. That's crazy. Dude. I don't know. I I don't know what to tell you. I know. There's, there is more information, but the story is so crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's also, it was a little interesting to follow because the, you know, initial news reports in 2011 and then yeah trial information in 2021 so he was sentenced in 2021 mm-hmm. is when he actually got his sentencing yes okay. trial started in march he was uh found guilty april 7th and then june 4th okay my gosh wow okay mm-hmm. is that it yeah that's oh, it. that's sorry. all i got i thought there was i more. don't have i don't have like a I don't have a happy ending to that. Damn. Well, I mean, I'm glad he's in prison. For now. I hope he never gets out. Yeah. What state was this in? California. California. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway. Well, I mean, hopefully these stories just make you thankful for your own family and being alive. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Is that rude? Yay. I'm happy I'm alive. Yeah, I question that sometimes. I could take it or leave it. Um, <laughs> Let's be real. Life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, while you're with your people that you're with at Christmas, whether they're loved ones or not, maybe uh, check out this podcast. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the new podcast, We're All Just Pretending. It's a podcast that has elements of Dear Abby with a twist of post-secret. Every episode, I'll read listener questions and provide advice and insight as a friend. My own pod friends will even join in and offer their advice on parenting, relationships, and even give you really bad advice on purpose. Since we all have secrets to share, there'll also be a segment focusing on letting the skeletons out of your closet. If you're looking for advice or want to share a secret, head to allpretendingpod.com. And remember, we're all just pretending here. All right, that's it. Wow, I made it. Our Christmas show is in the books. Yeah. Tiff's appearances are in the books. Yeah. Oh, note to future self, make sure you use the Christmas intro. (laughs) You asked me about it like two months ago. And I was like, yeah, like a month ago. When we started talking about this, you asked me if I wanted to use it. I'm pretty sure I said yes. I can't remember. I don't remember this at all. Yeah. I've blocked so much of my mind. I keep receipts for everything (laughs) is the thing. Uh, anybody can attest to that. I'm like, oh, yeah? What about on June 10th at 4 p.m. when you told me blah, 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 blah? 
<laughs> That's what I do. Yes. We hope you guys have a wonderful holiday season and be super safe. Yeah. Um, don't let strangers into your house. Nope. Especially if they're dressed like Santa. Oh, yeah. Don't do that. Or nope. in the chimney. No. Nope. If they're strangers. Yeah, don't let strangers if in the like chimney. If it's like dad dressed as Santa, you could probably let him in. It's probably fine. Yeah, but will you know it's dad? I hope so. <laughs> I but then really, it's not really Santa. So. Yeah, but the kids don't know that. <laughs> but what if there are kids listening right now? What are you doing? Then, you know what? I'm sorry. Bad parenting. I got to say. <laughs> I'm gonna go tell your mother there. and or father. I'm gonna just put it out there. What There's a done? window where this is a real bad parenting move. You're probably good until like two years old, and then after that, you gotta watch it to like 14. And then, Ooh, yeah. you know, after that, you're probably fine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on that note, our sound and editing is by the lovely in studio Tiff Fullman. Oh, I'll you give remembered. you that's your Christmas present. Oh, thank you. A hype. Hype sound. <laughs> Our music is by Jason Zaszewski, The Enigma. <laughs> Those are for both of you. Oh, okay. Thanks. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in 2024. Whoa. Whoa. Goodbye. Bye. Merry Krimbus. Happy yep. Chrysler. <laughs> What's the other one? Happy Honda Days? Or Happy something? Honda Days. <laughs> Merry Honda Days. See you at Toyotathon. Hey, hey, ishkanishmish. <laughs> I know it's a fucking bummer. It is. It's a bummer. I told you. I told you it was going to be. <laughs> At least I spiced mine up with a terrible joke. Tell me where to put a joke in that. There isn't a place. There isn't a place for mine either. It does not belong. I'm going to do it anyway and hope I... I mean... Oh, God. This is my last one. <laughs> Let's be real. You'll get complaints, but it's like, okay, we just won't put Tiff on the show anymore. Nah, we won't get complaints. I'll get... Wani will message me and be like, oh, my God, Tiff! <laughs> Oh, he'll message me. Oh, like, yeah, oh my God, Tia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Whenever you're ready. <sighs> I don't want to look at you and make you nervous. Oh, no. It's, it's not you looking at me. I'm just okay. nervous in general. <laughs>